0: Hello and welcome to Reflections for Maternal Weekend 2017. For our first interview, I'm very happy to have the world champion on with us today. How are you, Samuel? Hi, Andy. Andy Marketson. This was your third Maternal Weekend, you said?
1: Yeah, my third Eternal Weekend.
0: So, third Eternal Weekend. Top-aided last year. Won it this year. A lot of people have been congratulating you for the past couple weeks. Allow me to do that one more time for you. It's a great honor to talk to you, and I'm good to get started if you are. I
1: do appreciate that. That's that's very kind. Thank you, and I am good to go. Appreciate you having me.
0: To start off, let everyone know who you are and who you are outside magic, to start us off, the the person behind the Montolio.
1: <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a father of two beautiful girls. I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old daughter, and so a lot of my time is filled up with. With going to ballet, gymnastics, jazz, and swimming, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, it, uh, it keeps me keeps me busy. That's for sure. And my hobbies outside of magic, I'm really into hockey. I'm a diehard Toronto Maple Leafs fan, and yeah, I also been very much involved in the running world for probably the last 12, 13 years. I, I like to run marathons, etc., and that keeps me sane. So that's
0: that's <laughs> the guy. am outside of magic. Outgoing, having a good time. I mean, you're still outgoing in the magic world. It just gets a little tough being behind the magic online screen. But speaking of which, your personal magic history, like where you started, how you got to where you are, and you know, I heard there was a few gaps in there. A lot of us have gaps. I've found that most people I talk to, if they've been playing long enough, there's always a time where they're like, you know, maybe I don't think about this twenty four seven every day. <laughs> Yeah.
1: So my history, you want my history in magic, correct? Yep. So basically, I started playing magic around Ice Age, and I had a buddy that was playing the game or whatever. And, I, you know, I used to read a lot of fantasy novels and stuff back in the day, and he said, yeah, you got to check out this game. So I went and bought a starter box of Ice Age, and that's really the beginning. I, I mean, I remember opening, a, I believe it was a Krovokian Vampire oh man, was that card ever awesome. I played with it for (laughs) years. The the sad thing was, it took me years to figure out it was a really bad card, but the sweet spot for it still to this day, and, so yeah, I played uh, played paper, basically kitchen table stuff, for several years, and that was where it all began for me. And you know, I, I guess from there, once and I literally only had one friend that I played with, and so of course you can imagine we were playing some some pretty bad <laughs> bad blues back in those days. And that led to me discovering limited. So I started going to my local game store and. You know, I did that for a couple years where I go out on Friday nights or something like that. That's where my love of limited was discovered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went to a pre-release once, which was actually Ur- Urza Sega. I don't know what what your beliefs are, Samuel, but I'm a guy that believes in karma. And all <laughs> things happen I, I, all things happen for a reason, and at that Urza Sega pre-release, I had my probably 90% of my collection stolen. Yeah, it was pretty devastating because at this stage in the game, you know, I'd been playing Magic for for quite a few years you know, that was basically it for me. I, you know, you never recovered. I, I think I had a couple decks at home and, you know, you lose your entire collection. You're like, that's it. So I took a hiatus for, you know, one or two years and I bumped into a buddy of mine that I knew from a local game store one day walking down the street. and He said to me, hey, you know, you should play Magic Online. And I'm like, Magic Online? Of course, our, our connection was Magic. So that's what we started talking about. And I'm like, what's Magic Online? And I was a bit of a gamer, like I, I played a lot of video games and stuff like that. And he's like, "Oh yeah, you can." Long story short, describe the platform of the beta of Magic Online when it was just in its infancy, and he gave me his password to get into his beta account. And so I toiled around with it a little, and I'm like, "Oh, this is kind of, you know, it's kind of cool." Of course, it. I, I don't know if you're on Magic Online back in those days, or or if at all, Samuel. But back in those days, it was only like you know seventh edition, and I I think like invasion block like there was just hardly anything on there and so anyways i played with that for a little bit and you know i don't know what it was probably six months or a year later after the beta closed that i opened up a magic online account of my own yeah to make a really long convoluted story that's really where it began for me was on magic online and you know i started out playing a little bit of extended and uh, which led into the classic format Are you familiar with what the classic format is?
0: I I do, I remember. I remember seeing some old uh, classic deck lists before they released the Power Nine, and it really was just its own format, because you had, like, the broken cards, and then you had... It still was sort of regulated, right? It did have a... Was it a bin list or a restricted list?
1: It it had both. Uh, uh been restricted list on it and uh yeah anyways classic was basically my true catalyst for competitive magic i i played a lot of that and it's where i i built my love for vintage because as i'm sure you're aware we had a lot of the same cards that were broken just minus the power nine so to give you an example like we had yagmas bargain and will and mistress workshops and loas and force of wills and all that stuff so uh Of course, not the exact same, but still playing with some potent power level, and I had a lot of success in the format playing Classic, and it was a primer for me waiting and hoping for Vintage to come online, because who doesn't want to play with all the the Power 9, right?
0: Right, definitely. So, did you find that pretty much everyone in Classic just went over to Vintage? Like, How familiar were you with Vintage when you were waiting for the moxes and everything to come out? All very familiar.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, we followed every, and to answer your question, I mean, there was a a large contingent of us that played classic that were waiting for vintage to come online for sure. Despite we were a small demographic playing, much like vintage is now on on Magic Online, it's a small demographic in comparison with the remainder of the formats, like, you know, standard, modern, limited, and all that. We were, we followed all the mana drain and, you know, we knew all the big players in vintage and, so, for sure, we were quite familiar with the lists, and you know for me, when vintage actually did come online, it was uh, it was a pretty easy transition for me, truth be told, and and you know, I don't mean to come across as arrogant, but I mean I'd played a lot of workshops online, minus the power, minus the power, nine and so transition wise, and of course, knowing a lot of the lists that were already out there in vintage, it really for me was a matter of like learning to set my chalice at zero. Online. right versus you know naturally in classic we would just set it at one because you know you didn't have to worry about mocks and so you know right away i was having quite a bit of success in vintage online when it first came out and yeah I, i mean essentially what that i don't know how long i played for like maybe six months and and champs came around and of course i'm an only a moto player only at this point and I remember loading up Twitch and, and this is the first time loading up Twitch and watching champs online. And I remember sitting watching Roland Chang play. And of course, I was well aware of Roland at the time, but you know, swinging workshops. And I don't know what it was, 2013 or 2014, something like that. And I'm like, Oh, that just looks so great. Like so great. And you know, I want to do that. And so it was at that moment, I. I, I just recently told Roland this, but, you know, it was kind of at that moment that I said, yeah, I'm going to buy into paper. I'm just going to do it. Like, I love, love playing vintage. And that's where it all started, Samuel. I, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if you want me to tell you a little bit about nope. my yeah, Fourier yeah, definitely.
0: You know, that's
1: what, that's what I've got to say about Magic Online. I mean, I've had a, a lot of success playing vintage on Magic Online, but uh, which is exciting. But for me, the real excitement began when I was able to move into paper. And so I think 2014 was my first year going out, and I started uh, – uh, I went to the trifecta of oh, – no, no, I went to two two tournaments that year. I went to the NYSE, which was my first paper tournament ever, and oh, wow. I went to Champs. Yeah, yeah, it was super cool because, you know, I had an opportunity to meet, a, a, you know, a number of people on Magic Online, uh, you know, like Brian Schlossberg and, and Rache, and, you know, it was kind of cool going there. I went just with a friend from Toronto who actually I didn't know that well because, of course, I just literally had moved into Paper Vintage in Toronto as well. We have a really small scene here. But, you know, going out and meeting those guys in person was a really cool experience. And, you know, the the tournament itself was, I mean, all kind of synops champs and the NYSC together, I I had very similar records. I, I think I went something like, oh, I don't know, um... Seven and three or something like that at the NYSE. I can't remember how many rounds now it was. And, uh, I had a very similar record at champs. Um, uh, so I did pretty good, but not quite there. Um, it was, it was a really steep learning curve for me moving into paper. I, I remember having a discussion once with Kevin Cron before I had actually come out to the NYSE, my first paper tournament. And, you know, kind of what I, what, what type of differences do you think you'll expect when you get there? And tournament management is a real thing. That was the, that was my steepest lesson going there, you know, having, uh, kind of navigating and like, to be clear, Samuel, I mean, like I hadn't played a paper tournament in over 10 years.
0: Yeah. So I, I'm back. just in the math of my head. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's such a, it's such a big event too. That's great. That's just like going right into it. That's pretty impressive because those well, are I mean, grueling, like. One thing, biggest thing about, like, those long tournaments, when you're not, you can't just sit comfortably at home, is they really get grueling. Oh, and, for sure. And, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll talk more about that
1: later. I, I've got, oh, some, yeah. <laughs> like, some cool stories about that. But, you know, it was just really, you know, there are a lot of advantages to playing at home. Yes. And, you know, you've got your bathroom there, and if you need something to eat, it's big. And and these were things that were really throwing me for a loop, you know, like uh, my my preparation was poor. Like, I didn't bring something to eat. I didn't have water with me. It was uh, you know, having somebody sitting across the table from me and talking to me. Yeah. I found that distracting in the beginning. I wasn't – I'm used to hyper-focus and, you know, tuning in on what I'm doing and, um, you know, things like play trends. Like, you've got to be able to remember your tangle wire trigger and your chalice trigger. So, silly things that, you know, paper players would take for granted, but it, it took a little bit for me to figure that, those things out. And anyway, so long story short, 2014 was, in hindsight, I mean, despite I was disappointed at the time, like, I still did pretty good, and, you know, I, I learned that I could swing with people on paper. 2016? No, okay, so Samuel, I'm screwing this up. Yeah, so probably 15. It was, it was 2015, my yes. apologies, no, 2014 no that I looked... Uh, you know, I saw it on Twitch. I'm like, yeah, I'm playing. 2015 was my first foyer in the paper, and 2016 was uh, was kind of my coming out party. I, I had a, a pretty good year for that last year. I went to the NYC again, which is a fantastic tournament run by Nick Dotwyler, and I I ended up having a, a, a very good tournament and won that one on Ravager TKS shops. Doesn't that seem like a long time ago now? Oh, saying man.
0: that. Thought not. This year, that was. <laughs> Those days with the thought Knot seer, just toss it in there, and it worked really well. It does feel forever ago. Now everything is just ravager this, ravager that. What can we ravager now?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we had ravager in that list, and it, oh, was, yeah. it, was, it was it was a big player in the list. But of course, you're right. Thought Knot was the the big catalyst there. So, anyways, that was that was an amazing tournament for me, and you know, it felt wonderful to win that. It was uh, really the coming out party for. The magic online players making an impact, at least from my standpoint, in paper, in vintage.
0: I, I definitely uh, agree with that. I, that's the first thing when when people were reporting from it. There was two, right? The finals. It was, was it was Tom Matelski and I. Yeah, yep. Two uh, big Magic Online players battling heads in paper. Yeah. No. 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 Definitely, what people were saying—that's really invasion. Then it's really that when Magic Online really started to pick off a lot more, and I saw a lot more people buying in because. It's really it, people take online results, you know, seriously. But people always will take the paper results, which just those step higher. And that's really like you know this guy can play; he doesn't just you know four o the dailies and this that. You know he wins the event, and then you top aided the next big event right after that, which is pretty big. Which this year actually spoiled a little pattern that been going on because uh, Sullivan Brophy won the NYSE the year before top eighted you won the NYSE top eight we just need the NYSE winner to win to top eight this year and it would have been a pretty fun pattern that'd been going on
1: yeah oh for sure yeah for sure but anyways so the NYSE uh, was it was a good tournament for me and I ended up going out to the Waterbury after that which was my first time at the Waterbury Ray Robelow ran that one and had a really good tournament there as well I ended up uh, it, it was a little bit unfortunate I was five zero, and I ended up drawing Nick Dejon in round six and, and we were unable to draw he couldn't draw so we ended up playing and I lost that which threw me in the ninth place which was, was uh yeah I mean we've all been in that position it, it didn't feel good but obviously still a, a respectable placing uh then of course as you just mentioned uh, I went to champs after that and was able to top eight once again with, with Ravager TKS and uh, ended up losing in the quarters to the, the eventual winner. So, uh, good year last year, which, a little brings- better year this year. Well, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's really funny because I was not even going to go to champs this year. I had, I've had a pretty, uh, uh, challenging 2017 personally this year and. I was unable to get out to any of the other, the other tournaments that I went last year. Like, was really sad to knock back and be able to defend NYSE and you know, couldn't go to Waterbury, any of the E's, and you know, I didn't want to ramp down. I wanted to ramp up, and so champs was even in question for me, Samuel. I I was kind of a last minute decision, and yeah, I'm really
0: glad I went. <laughs> <laughs> so your team, the Academy, what was their role? in or how long like when did you start playing with them and then how did it lead to the point that we're at now because three members in the top eight you and rich and brian
1: yeah the academy is an interesting
0: story. and you know i i'm probably the guys will bulk at me for
1: the way i'm describing this because i'm, I'm rather a poor historian but I, the way I remember it is, you know, as my name started to proliferate a little bit out there on Magic Online, I started talking with uh, with Brian Matthews, you know, of course, uh, Matt Murray, and Brian Matthews is uh, I believe, on Magic Online, and Matt Murray's Chubby Rain, and, you know, these were guys that I was... Well, Matt Murray and I bumped heads a lot in, in events back in the infancy of... Vintage. Like we played each other a fair amount and uh, there was a mutual respect there. And, you know, Brian and I used to talk about shops because Brian's a, a shops only guy. So that was kind of my, and they're both in, of course, in the Academy. I guess at some point, if I recall, it was, I think it was in like March of 2016 that Matt Murray put me up for vote. And that was, that was my in uh, into the Academy. And yeah, I mean, essentially what is it? It's a, it's just a hive mind of really good magic. Vintage only guys. And, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a really humbling and great learning experience being with these guys. I mean, obviously you're aware of, you know, some of the guys that are in there, but, you know, some of the more prominent names like guys like Brian Kelly and Rich Shea and Matt Murray, just to name a few, Ryan Eberhardt, uh, Will Dayton. I mean, I, you know, there, there's quite a few of us in there, Brian Matthews. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a, a pretty good experience. Very, very flattered to be part of the team.
0: So how, how did being part of that hive mind help you decide on your final list? Like, we saw you went through some last-minute sideboard changes, a lot Definitely. of stuff, like preparation for it. I mean, you knew you were going to be on Ravager Shops, right? That was a given. But your exact list, how did you get to that point? Because you said you're almost not going to make it, which might have affected your preparation. To be clear, like, we have five. You know, within the Academy, we have silos.
1: You know, it's not like we're always, you know, we can put things up and for discussion if we so choose. But for me, Ravager Shops wasn't something I really, I'm extremely comfortable with the deck. And, you know, I didn't really need to discuss too much about it. It was kind of, I think one night when Rich figured out that he was going to be playing Ravager Shops, we got on Skype for two or three hours and, you know, kind of just hammered it out. As to what we both thought were good, and collated our data, and we we went through it tooth and nail, every single card right into our sideboard, and so that was really the extent of the the work with the academy on my list. Like Rich and I put in some real good time and some testing on it, and yeah,
0: both uh, we we must have done something right, <laughs> definitely. So. Uh, yeah, because what is it? You you guys had a difference in your sideboard that well, he Rich didn't have the ratchet bombs, right, and you did.
1: Correct. Yeah, I mean, the differences in our list were pretty minor. We, with reference to the tuning of the list, essentially I had both Rich and I actually had three null rods on our sideboard, believe it or not, in these lists. And we made the changes to our sideboards individually. You know, we didn't talk about it. And it's kind of funny that we both came off the null rods. And when we were discussing it, null rods, I mean, when you think about Null Rod in our deck list, what an atrocious card. Like, I mean, yeah. you just give up so much in your list. Uh, Hanger Back Walkers, Ballistas, Ravagers, Overseers, like it just nukes nukes our deck. But we were also on Chiefs as well. That was another thing I've never talked to I don't think I've talked about up to this point is we, we had three Chiefs in our list. Uh, as I recall when we left it and we kind of both titrated our lists and you know, I knew this was after our discussion and I knew I wanted hangerbacks in my deck the more I thought about them. So I ended up cutting two chiefs for two hangerbacks uh, to give me a little bit of resiliency and to be a little bit lower to the ground. And I ended up keeping one chief because the card is really fantastic. Like it's you know, and it was excellent for me at Eternal Weekend as well. Uh Wish I could have had more of them, but Rich just chose to not run any chiefs afterwards, and he just ran three hanger backs. So that was the difference in our main list. I had one chief, and he had an extra hanger back. And sideboard, I uh, I chose to go with the ratchet two ratchet bomb powder keg package over my two null rods, three null rods, excuse me. I think Rich had a witchbane orb and two sorcerer spyglasses. For me, I was you know the reason that you run ratchet bombs, contrary to popular popular opinion these days, is basically to nuke fast mana. When you're up against PO decks, and I expected there was going to be a presence of them at champs, so that's why I went with those. Uh, I don't know if you saw my interview with Randy post-tournament, but I would have rather have had Swords for Spyglass than the Ratchet Bombs. Not not hindsight, of course, but that's <laughs> That was my line of thinking at the time, but I didn't own them and I just wasn't willing to, you know, run around on Saturday morning looking for them. This was a, this was like a change that happened at 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night before champs. And of course I'm familiar with ratchet bombs and powder kegs. I've, I've played them a lot and never been crazy about them, but it's one of those things like a necessary evil. You'd be sad if you didn't have them against fast combo. And your main
0: disruption, yeah.
1: You know, sometimes you just catch them with their pants down, right? When they're on the play, like they belch it out and, you know, they don't combo off and you can drop a quick ratchet bomb and nuke their, all their fast mana, get you back into the game because, you know, I don't know what other people's experience has been, but I find that the current iteration of shops struggle significantly against fast mana decks, PO decks, you know, with tinkers in them and stuff. So, so
0: that's kind of the, the genesis of, the list that I brought to champs. And, uh, so the split, is that just a nod to Sorcerer's Spyglass? Or one would have... I'm assuming Ratchet Bomb's better than Powder Keg because you can kill enchantments and such, but Powder Keg has that slight edge where you can always use it if someone tries to kill it. But I think in the end, you definitely want bomb. So the split really just nod to... Uh, Revoker, Spyglass, and Needle. That that is one reason for sure. To be clear, it's a little bit of a
1: misnomer when people ask me about this because I do not side in Ratchet Bomb against Oath. You know, I think a lot of people think that you do, and that that's the reason to run it. um I'm not looking to disrupt my game plan by dropping down a Ratchet Bomb and trying to pump it up twice to get rid of an Oath Druids. I'm just trying to. I basically nod. That is not a good matchup for me, contrary to my, my results with this list recently against Oath, but. I just, uh, you know, I'm Graf Digger's Cage and my factories, and if I get a fast Oath down against me, well, I live with it. Uh, I think the likelihood of casting a Ratchet Bomb and pumping it up twice and dodging removal and being able to remove it uh, an Oath of Druids is is not what I'm looking to do. They're going to be able to remove it somehow or, you know, find an Orchard token. It, it just seems poor. So to answer your question, Samuel, I, I do the split for, yes, for to dodge Revokers and Spyglasses. In addition to that, one neat little thing about the Powder Keg, which I found to be most excellent, is the, again, Seed of the Synod decks. Seed of the Synod gets removed huh. by Powder Keg. Ratchet Bomb does not hurt them because it's non-land, so the Powder Keg will kill them. And I have had several games where I'm playing against these combo decks, you know, Thirst for Knowledge decks that run them. Anyways, neat nuance. The main functionality is to dodge revoker, though. It's, you know, it's kind of no different than splitting your fetch lands now with Sorcerer's glass, right? you got to yeah. be, you can't get greedy. A uh, very similar analogy there.
0: So, changes you would make, did you like what Rich did where you just went for all of the hangerbacks, Or do you think you try to squeeze more of the, the Foundry Inspectors in? Like, knowing what you know now, post-champs, when people are be like, all right, I want to play this list now in a league, what changes, like, would you make to it? Knowing what you know now, knowing how people are adapting. Well, I mean, look at how would I adapt, make changes for people adapting to
1: shops right now? It's hard to say. I mean, I just fin- actually finished playing in the Power Nine Challenge today. It's the first Magic that I've played in the last uh, since champs, and I loaded up my desk, my deck verbatim minus I put in two sorcerer's spy glasses and into uh, my sideboard, and the deck felt okay. I ended up going four two with it. You know, I was getting blown out by Ancient Grudges, and uh, I can't think of what the name is, Shattering Spree, or getting STP'd, and Path to Exile, like, it felt like people are adapting to it. So where to go from there, I'm not sure whether I do want more Hangerbacks or not, because against the majority of Blanket Removal, Hangerback's a very good card, gives you some level of resiliency, you know, against both those two cards I just mentioned, you know, Shattering Spree and Ancient Grudge, Hangerbacks are just phenomenal. But one of my beasts with Hangerback Walker is, and this is something I debated vehemently when I, Rich and I were looking at our decks, Hangerback Walker is a card that quite often wants to be sitting back and pumping them up and trying to get value out of them, and I believe the Overseer build is you want to be going full tilt with it. Like, you want to be attacking. You don't want to be sitting there and pumping. Despite I still think that that theory applies, Hangerback is really, really good, and you know, could be very well that we do want more of them in the deck. You know, as for what I would change post champs, like you know, hindsight—is there anything that I didn't like in my list? Would I make changes to? Absolutely not. That deck list was hyper honed, and there wasn't one card that you know, outside of what I just said about ratchet Bobs, and powder keg, there wasn't a card there that didn't have its place. So I really like the the list, obviously, Samuel, and it's it's really a a situation of where there are just so many. Good choices for workshops right now, and you just can't really fit them. You know, we saw some of that variety in the top eight. You know, some guys were running cars, and you know, other people were loading up on chiefs. And as I said earlier, I would have loved to have another two chiefs in my deck. Just love to have those crusade effects. But yeah, I like the list a lot. You know, Spyglass is the only card that I I really at this stage in the game am testing out. I think in theory it's really good, and you know. Most importantly, shores up a, a difficult match now with the resiliency in the dredge match. Uh, Spyglass uh, shutting off their bazaars is just huge. And of course, the dodge is missed up. And so I, I'm testing that one out right now in the place of the uh, ratchet bomb. And so far, so
0: good. Excellent. All right. So leading up to it, the deck, the top eight, everything. So the tournament itself. So everyone is able to watch most of the top eight. A lot of the tournament really doesn't get seen on camera. So from round one, how was your eternal weekend?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, my eternal weekend was awesome. You know, uh, it, it just in a bubble, like you know, coming out to these events is just so great. You get to see everybody. You know, I'm meeting new people. It's everybody's just so friendly. Uh, it's uh, as I'm sure you know, Samuel, just a wonderful experience. Uh, I think I said on on uh, so many insane plays that it's cliche. Like you know, the vintage community is so great, but <laughs> it, it really is though. And and, and coming from a guy. That that has not been around for a long time i mean you know i've been 3 years that i've been knowing all these people and meeting new people and it's just awesome like the amount of friends that i've made in this community are, it it's really humbling like uh what a great
0: experience for for the most part like it, it's probably the best communities that i've ever been a part of like the fact that there's a one player um <clears throat> i i forget his... i forget his. i I know his name on Magic Online is uh, Rishi QQ. Uh, Rishikesh Siddhartha, I think his name is. Um, he oh. was brand new to vintage, and Rich Shea agreed to talk to him about vintage just on the phone out of the goodness of his heart for like three, four hours. Like, that's the <laughs> type of people. Yeah, that's the type of people that things like, you want to know something about this format? We'll help you. We all want to be part of it. And I think that's that's my my favorite part about it is that people are want you to play and they want you to have a good time and yeah I guess it helps that it's also older people usually that play because they can afford like the more expensive stuff and you know we're not brash young people anymore and you know butting head and trying to be the best and being like you know you can go to a tournament and go one three but still have a good day just because the everyone is just so nice around. Like, all the vintage terms I've been to has just been a wonderful atmosphere and no rules lawyering, nothing like that. Just people just having fun and, you know, uh, congratulating your opponent on great plays. And it's just, it's all great. And I think more communities need to learn from them. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, you
1: know, it's... I didn't see any salt all day, anything like that. <laughs> everybody was, well, I mean, it takes all sorts to make a world. And I, and not to say there are poor sports in our community, but I, I mean, for me, it was, uh, everybody was very, very nice to me and, you know, extending handshakes and yeah, anyways, really wonderful to be the experience of the community. And yeah, I mean, moving into the tournament, did you, did you want to talk to a little bit about my rounds or?
0: Yeah. Yeah, we started round one, go through for what you remember.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, to be clear, I, I'm a, I am a very poor poor historian <laughs> with reference to nuances of what happened. I mean, I'm just dialed in and I don't, I don't remember and I take bad notes. I can tell you scores, Samuel, but, you know, for the nuances, like round one, I played against, uh, Oath of Druids and really, uh, i I had no idea who I was playing against and I don't think they knew who I was and, um, he won the die roll and really fast beatdown from me was a minor disruption. And that got me into second game. And I, I had no idea what I was playing against. You know, game two, very similar. I got a fast beatdown on him and I did see an oath of, Dr- or a F- forbidden orchard phone that game. I beg your pardon, which cued me off to, oh, like, you know, that moment where you go, Oh dear. And it was pretty early on in the game. And, you know, I, he never ended up resolving anything against me or any oath of druids and. Yeah, I finished him off two oh, uh just with your traditional beatdown and some minor land disruption. Didn't see any spheres that game. And round two I played against another gentleman by the name of Carey. He was playing a you know, once again he won the die roll and he was in Grixis, is what I what I figured out pretty quick. Like I think I saw a C and a Volk out of him. You know, he played a Time Bolt game one and that was essentially all he did for that game. I'm not helping myself so far, keeping shops off restriction the way I'm talking about this. It's just like I'm, <laughs> I'm like, talked turn two, turn three, it's over. But that that game was over incredibly fast. And, uh, game two, I ended up getting a, a triple revoker hand with some, uh, with, with a wasteland, I think. And, you know, he, he just didn't end up doing anything, but it turned out at the end, at the end of that game, I was talking to him a little bit and he, it actually turned out that he was on Oath of Druids. And so I, I, went, I was flabbergasted. He was playing some type of fast mana combo oath deck. It wasn't like Grix of Steve's or anything like that. I, point in saying that is that I somehow beat Oath of Druids round one and round two in this tournament. Very, very lucky. <laughs> uh, because of course, that's the deck that you want to dodge uh, when you're playing my type of a build. And so, yeah, that was uh that was a fantastic start of my day for me. Uh, currently sitting, 2-0, uh, 4-0 in games, and I ran, I ran into a guy in round three playing Guy. It was a really cool build. He had uh, he was running TT, uh, thing in the ice. Guy oh. with one manpower in it. Yeah, just a typical Xerox deck with TT in it. Super cool deck. Uh, I ended up beating him 2-0 as well. Round four, I ran into blue-white standstill. Interesting fact is I only won one die roll that entire day. So
0: <clears throat> Really? I won?
1: Yeah, shocking. I know. <laughs> Uh, I couldn't believe my luck, but as long as I kept winning, I was like, all right. But but I ended up beating the standstill list 2-0, which uh, feels good. I, I think one of the misnomers that people think uh, of your anyways is that standstill was a really good matchup against Shops, and I don't agree with that. Despite its close, uh, you know, I could see the old standstill lists being good against Ravager TKS because that's a little bit of a slower deck. When you get up against these current iterations of workshops, they're they're hyper aggressive and quite often they're getting down faster than your standstill. And even if so, someone has a on the play turn one standstill, I mean, popping it and you know belching your creatures out of the table is not easy for them to handle. So yeah. Anyways, I, I've ended up going 4-0 there. And which took me to round five, which was a feature match. And I I think our third game was covered, but this was against Dan Barkin, who was playing Ravager Shops. This was a, this was actually the, my first loss in the tournament. And I, he beat me two to one. And it was the first moment that I started to really feel like, Oh, I'm, you know, we mentioned earlier, I'm starting to fatigue a little bit here. Like my, I felt like that was, uh, Uh, And not because I lost the game. Uh, It was more because I felt like I could have won that match. And I just, my line of thinking was not clean. Like I made a really bad attack into him at one point where, you know, I just missed the, he had a Ravager on the table. Like he sacked his Ravager and, you know, I looked pretty bad doing it. Uh, it Which is, you know, very uh, routine, common play. You've got to be careful of Ravagers on the table. So anyways, uh, I was at 4-1 at that point and kind of going, oh, I'm not feeling so good after that one, and I was able to rally against in round 7 against a guy named Casey who was playing Blue-Red Delver, and this is traditionally a tough matchup for Shops. Uh, he's, uh, he's got Wastelands in his deck and Dak Fadens, and this guy actually had a, a particularly cool build. It was with the Berserkers and Harsh Mentors. Uh, I, I don't know if you've seen too many of those around, but... Th- nasty
0: scab clan right the scab clan berserker you mean yep. yeah scab, scab clan berserker scab berserker and harsh mentor oh wow so harsh oh wow harsh mentor that's not that, that's not what you want to see well it's really bad against
1: it's it hurts us really badly right with things like <laughs> yeah. ballistas anger bags and ravagers you're kind of going
0: oh dear oh, it but turns out this a is actually, ballista into a brothers of fire. That's not good.
1: Yeah, exactly. But but this was one of the you know, one of the few points I do remember something because it was a vital decision that I had to make. I believe I ended up beating him 2-0. In game two, I I believe I was at nine life, Samuel. And he had on the other side of the table a renowned Scab Clan Berserker as well as a flip delver. So hitting in for six damage. And I had a decision where it, I don't remember exactly where he, I think maybe he was at Six Life or something like that. And I had a, I think it was an inspector on the table and a metamorph in hand. And I had an ancient, was it ancient tomb? Yeah, I had an ancient tomb in in play. And my decision was, is I had a metamorph in hand. And it was, what do I do with this metamorph? You know, do I copy his Delver? Do I copy a Scab Clan Berserker? And I had a clean board, like he was tapped out so I could attack into him. So the problem was that I had to lose two life to cast a metamorph. I did have a blue source. I think I had a mock sapphire out there. So I took two life, which would put me to seven, no matter what I did. He's swinging for six. So what I ended up doing after some thought was I ended up metamorphing, copying his berserker, which has haste. I attacked him. For five and uh, I renowned it afterwards so basically what that meant I mean I was hedging my bets a little bit like if he had a hasty creature I was gonna die on the swing back but essentially what it meant is he couldn't burn me out because he would have died to my my renowned trigger does that make any sense
0: yeah no definitely because you you cast the bolt he dies to the bolt before it hits you so like that yeah no that's definitely better than Because you would die to, I guess you wouldn't die, but if it got like lightning bolted itself, but yeah, no, blanking your opponent's outs is definitely a very good strategy. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you
1: know, as I convey it, there it doesn't sound like that great of a play, but it was a very I put a lot of deep thought into that play, and it was a critical play. Like that could have cost me the game had I did done another play there. So, anyways, I, I felt good about that, and all of a sudden I'm sitting at so I'm now six and one. So. This takes me to round 8, and round 8 was a really big one for me because I ran into one of my buddies and fellow Academy member, Vasu. And Vasu, I knew his list, well, obviously, you know, we'd done some discussion on it over time, and he was on Jeskai Stoneblade. This is a tough match for me. Like, he's got TNNs in there, he's got, you know, Batterskulls, Stoneforge Mystics, and uh, Faden and all sorts of Disruption Bolts, and really difficult match for me. I was really lucky. I, I, I ended up beating him 2-0 in this. And in both games, I was at one life. So incredibly close. And it was just at this moment that I was like, this is the first time that I thought to myself, I'm like, ugh. I'm like, I, I, I have a chance here. That was the first time I allowed myself to think it at seven and one. So, and of course, I, f- I felt really lucky to get by Vasu because, uh, he's an excellent player which takes me to round nine and I played against a gentleman by the name of Frank and he was on bug. And I know Frank was seven, seven, Oh, and two. That was his record at that point. So he had a bit of a better record than me. And, uh, he was on the play of course. And he, and I, I remember him saying, you know, of course I knew what he was on right away because he went underground sea into drew death, right. Shaman. I'm like, Oh dear. Just so happens that I ended up having a, a really good hand that game and i was able to wasteland him i think i played a mana crypt into a revoker with no disruption and shut off as Right shaman and anyways i was able to get there pretty quickly that game but definitely had a i don't want to call it a cool play but i, I had a, another heads up play in game two against him where we had, we both had pretty solid boards like i remember he had like a Death Right shaman a Leavald out um I think he had a Manglehorn out, you know, bringing my stuff in a top. Like, it was pretty relevant. And I also had a, a pretty significant board. Like, I had a, a Chief in play. I had a Ravager in play. I think I had a hanger back Walker in play. Uh, we were kind of sitting at parity on the board. And uh, I ended up, I do not even know what possessed me to necessarily side it in, but I brought in a Precursor Golem. So, it's on the stack. I cast this Precursor. And Frank really sat there for a minute. And he had a couple cards in his hand, and he's like, hmm. You know, I, I don't know if he's, you know, he's certainly representing a force of will because he really agonized over countering it or not. And so after some de- deliberation, he lets it resolve. So I get my tokens come into play. And he, another important piece of this information is he's tapped out. I immediately sacrifice my precursor golem to my ravager. And he's, he's like, oh, didn't see that one coming. And for those of you that, I, I mean, for anybody that plays workshops, you know, with these precursors, probably is all over this move. But if you're not used to it, it's a, uh, it's a great play against uh, uh, opposing uh, players because once you remove that precursor golem, you can't target them, right? I mean, you can target the
0: tokens. It, does, it doesn't get copied.
1: Yes, it doesn't remove the other ones. And so all of a sudden I was left with two four fours for the price of five mana, which was pretty, pretty significant. And it ended up winning me the game. So I felt good about that. And yeah, which takes so currently sitting eight and one, which takes me to the big big round ten. You know, I'm playing against Russ at a feature match. And
0: yeah, that was a real crazy game. <laughs> game yeah. one, game two were great. Game three was was pretty crazy. I actually watched it a couple of times. There's so many layers to it, so it all really came down to the The metamorph again, huh? Your metamorph was like worked overtime this tournament.
1: Yeah, it did, and I mean, I I think I mentioned it in round five. Like my fatigue has set in at this point, Samuel. Like I, I, I am tired, and it is really wild what fatigue does to you when you get into these late rounds with you know what I would call a lot of autopilot thinking. Like it just fails you at times, and that game against Russ was without a doubt some of the sloppiest magic i've ever played in my life like i just you know to go back and watch it I, i'm incredulous some of the things that i do but you know it was uh obviously the when i had the precursor golem out against his worm coil engine when he attacked into me i also had a chief and play i believe it's like i threw two precursor golems in front of it like two two golem tokens right eight eight two four fours up against a six six like get that thing off i've got my own hell kite i just swing back and wipe out his worm tokens right no he had a ravager in play you know so made himself uh i don't know what it was a 10 10 i bigger mean, purpose yeah. worm coil which just basically blanked my two tokens for nothing and uh, you know so once again that was the second time today that i walked into a ravager you know i made a made a significant mistake because had i just triple blocked it That game was probably over at that point. And um, as you know, that turned into a a really, really crazy game of magic. And um, yeah, so that was the big one for me. And, uh, you know, there was another point, I think, in the match where uh, I'm probably going to screw this up. But where I was attacking in with my my Steel Hellkite, I played a Ratchet Bomb the turn before. Like uh, During my turn, well, what ended up happening, my apologies, Samuel. So what ended up happening was I did not end up attacking with my Hellkite. And he had Precursor golems or something on the other side of the table. What it f- forced me to do is I had two Moxes in play and I had a Ratchet Bomb. That was my only mana. And basically what I did was I penciled myself into having to kill my only two Moxes with the Ratchet Bomb to remove his tokens. When all I had to do was attack with my Hellkite and do it. Like I was being tentative. That I shouldn't have been. And I think that was a really big mistake for me because that ended up putting me into a position where, you know, as you know, that I basically had to draw mana to be able to cast that Sol Ring to kill him with my Hellkite. Anyways, it, it was a crazy game. I mean, there was also a point where, you know, I didn't blow up as Crucible of Worlds with my Hellkite with three mana in play. And, uh, you know, I got into trouble with that. I was locked with the Crucible. And, you know, I'm not sure whether that, even today, after having watched it, whether that was the right play or not, because I, I believe I was at one life when that game ended, and had I blown up as Crucible of Worlds, I wouldn't have had the mana to do what I needed to do to finish him. So, um, but anyways, my, my point being it was a real roller coaster of a match, and you know, no better fitting way to to make myself into the top eight. It, it was sloppy, but we got there.
0: I mean it, you you went first in the top eight, right? every game? Yeah yeah because yeah. you were so, first, first seed, right? First or second seed. Well, I was first seed. It first was seed, it was really yeah. funny because
1: you know I was just basically still so cloudy from that, that whole day when they were doing the top eight announcement, they called my name out first. I was I, I was astounded. I just had no idea that I was going to be on the play and it wasn't until a little bit later that it settled in like, wow, I'm going to be on the play all day Sunday, which is a foreign concept after that day, but boy, (laughs) boy, is it relevant.
0: I mean, that's, that, that, that's the, the payback, right? You you only go first once for 10 rounds. So you get to go first all three top eight matches.
1: Yeah. Jeez. Well, I'll make that (laughs) trade any day. (laughs) So, so, yeah, it was really cool. I, I remember kind of standing up after that match with Russ. and I, I don't know what I was doing, but I just stood up. I was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe that match just happened. And, you know, the way it went down was so crazy. I stood up, and Randy was beside standing behind me and uh, Randy Bueller. And I ended up saying to him, I'm like, something along the lines of, geez, did I ever play that bad? And Randy's like, gave me a pat on the shoulder. He's like, you got there anyways. <laughs> so it was – uh You couldn't have synopsed that any better, Randy. (laughs) It was slappy.
0: All's all's well that ends well. Yeah, exactly. For the the painting, do you have any big plans for it? Are you going to keep it? Are you going to get the second one they give you framed and offload it? What's your big plans with it? Yeah, I'm going, you know, it's funny because, you know, we talked a
1: a little bit about the painting and stuff before the top eight went down. Some of our teammates and stuff and, you know, kind of, what if one of us wins it or something like that? And, you know, I I don't like to think about that stuff too much before beforehand because, uh, you know, there's, there's just no point in fantasizing about something. You're not, you're not going to win. But when I did win it anyways, I wasn't sure if I was going to keep it or sell it at that point in time. And uh, once I won it, uh, I realized that it is something I'm going to keep. Um, It's uh, obviously a, extremely beautiful painting. I mean, to have a Black Lotus painting is pretty special and it's beautiful. And yeah, it's a memento of a great year for me. So I, I am planning on keeping it Samuel.
0: I saw the picture of it. It looks really good next to the NYSC uh, trophy.
1: Oh, thanks very much. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that, that one was a little bit staged for the <laughs> for the internet, but yeah, it's uh
0: good picture yeah. a good picture.
1: A good picture is a good picture, exactly. So yeah, I'm really happy to have it, and you know, it's even to this day. Like I, I think champs was three weeks ago. It's still really hard to believe. Like you know, it's uh, uh, a dream come true to be able to to win champs, and yeah, for vintage only guys like me, this is the the pro tour. Yeah,
0: next next stop uh, EU next year. <laughs> Taking that down, cross <laughs> the pond, what? steal the painting.
1: Yeah, I I would love to go. I mean, if uh, the painting would just be gravy, but I would love to go over to Europe, and uh, yeah, I, I am quite seriously considering it. Somebody's buddies of mine and I are talking about it, so uh, I guess depending on when it shakes down and all that stuff, uh, it is up there on my list of things to do, so.
0: So, I guess sort of a good segue into that, because you had to come down from Canada and actually saw some of the Team Tusk guys run into this, too. You're... Your, your deck is, your deck itself is not just a regular vintage deck. Like, you take the time to get the foils, you got the black-bordered moxes and the beta soul rings and stuff. When you have, like, a deck like that and cards of that value, how is traveling with them? Like, do you run into problems? Do you run into, like, you know, people giving you grief for having all these weird boxes in your bags? Uh. It, just to clarify, I, uh,
1: I'm not one of those guys that has all the, the alpha and beta power. I've got a, I've got a beta mox and a beta sol ring. Uh, the rest of my stuff is all unlimited. So uh, I can't, I can't have any claim to fame on that stuff, but I mean, still traveling with, I mean, I, I, would, I don't even know what my deck would cost, but I, I mean, it's obviously a lot of money. And when you're crossing the border, they don't like you having, I mean, you're supposed to declare that stuff, right? You know, how much, how much money are you bringing over? I've never had any difficulties with it, but when I came home with from the States into Canada, from the NYSC that I won, and of course I'm carrying around this massive trophy through, through customs.
0: (laughs) You guys haven't seen the trophy. It's, it's, it's far too big and that's the best part about it.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's (laughs) a really, it's a really heavy trophy of Atlas carrying the earth. And uh, yeah, I mean, best trophy in magic for sure. There's no doubt, but anyways, it's a, it's a huge red flag, right? Some guy carrying this big, you know, weapon through, uh, through customs. And so they stopped me and, uh, they started looking through my bags. And of course, you know, I had these binders of magic cards and, you know, my deck and, you know, they started looking through it and, you know, I guess they're putting, I don't know what they are, swabs of some sort inside some of my cards and my actual vintage deck. And they weren't handling the cards as delicately as i would have liked you know my brand new first black lotus is shoved in there and uh i'm all i'm all nervous about it but you know i i was apprehensive to say hey you know that's a twenty thousand dollar deck like you know those cards are worth a lot of money like can you be careful i didn't want to inflame them but that's the only difficulty i've ever had you know normally they just want to know where you're going and uh, i tell them where i'm going and they can't get rid of me fast enough Going to cast some spells. Okay, that's all I want to hear. See ya. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: But anyways, yeah, it's uh, traveling to and from is not too bad from the States to Canada. What it would be like over in Europe, I'm not too sure. But,
0: I, mean, I bet you could easily find someone to help you with those questions.
1: Yeah, oh, well, for sure.
0: Yeah, I've had, <laughs> yeah. Some,
1: uh, I've had some preliminary chats with some guys over in Europe. And um, yeah, that sounds like if it happens, we'll uh, we'll have some some people to show us around and stuff, which would be kind of cool
0: so i guess to to cap off the whole interview cap off everything who would you like to thank and anything else you'd like to add that happened before or after tournament just general reaction to everything yeah i obviously i want to thank my
1: wife and my two children you know it's uh, i i put a moderate amount of time into practicing my my craft and you know, sometimes that comes at the expense of hanging out with them, and they've been real supportive of me throughout my, my journey. So, first and foremost, them. And of course, I'd love to thank all my, my team over at the academy. We've got a great group of guys and girls over there, and, you know, I couldn't have done it without them. And yeah, lastly, as I mentioned earlier, like I'd really like to thank everybody in the community who's reached out to me and you know, been supportive of me and introduced themselves. It's been, uh, it's you know, winning the trophy is one thing, but. Meeting all the people and the new friends is way more enriching for me. So it's it's been a just a wonderful experience, and I think uh, I want to thank everybody out there. And you know, other other little tidbits. Uh, you know, really enjoyed going out uh, on Friday night after we top aided I was hanging out with you know, the, the group of the guys there, Rich and Ryan and Brian Kelly, and it was a really good night. Matt Murray, we were all celebrating, and that was uh, definitely one of the highlights of the weekend for me. Uh, I think, think that's it, Samuel. It's uh,
0: it's it's still uh, it's still surreal. <laughs> I mean, you got a, another eleven months and one week of being world champion before anyone has to say about it. So, I mean, well deserved, and thanks for talking to me today. Really appreciate it. Well, I uh, you're welcome, and I really appreciate you taking the time and having me on.
1: It was uh, it was a real pleasure.